welcome back to Banter, a podcast brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. We are delighted to bring to you today an interview with AI's very own Christina Hoff Summers. Christina Hoff Summers is a former professor of philosophy who has become an incredibly popular internet thought leader and has also written several books, including The War Against Boys and Who Stole Feminism. She is one of the leading thinkers on feminist issues in the entire country, and we are so excited to bring you the conversation we had with her today. You just heard Max Dewey. I'm Max Frost, coming at you live from Glens Falls, New York. Up next, you'll hear from Matt Weinset. Now, at one point in the show, we talked to her about a new TV show called Mrs. America. For reference, it's a new show on FX and Hulu about the fight against the Equal Rights Amendment um, back in the 70s. So just some context there in case you're wondering what we're talking about. And this is Matt Weinsett coming at you live from Heathsville, Virginia, down in the Northern Neck. We are continuing our banter uh, tradition of having former Bill Maher guests on this show. Christina is another one who's done some pretty funny interviews with Bill Maher in the past, but we do think our interview is better. So without further ado, here is Christina Hoff Summers. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Miss Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Christina, thank you so much for coming on to Banter today. Uh, Very glad to be here. So my first question for you is, over 80,000 COVID-related deaths, uh, 33 million people filed for unemployment in the last seven weeks. What happens to issues like gender pay gap and gender fluidity amidst this very troubling, scary backdrop? Do they go away or are they here to stay? They never go away because the advocates will not give up. And they will, I think they were, perhaps momentarily silenced and then by the odd fact that more men than women die it was hard to turn it into an oppressive issue for women but they found a way and I don't know within a few weeks people were saying well there were several uh, stories about how this was having a disparate impact on women there was a story in Politico that actually said it was worse for women the men are dying and they said something like and you know that's not a good thing but it's far worse for women because they are the caregivers and there's more demand on you know cooking and cleaning and so forth at the home now that's probably true um but if you were if we're going to play that game then i think we have to they have to be clear about more men dying and there are areas that are impacting men far worse. Far more men than women are in prison and prisons have been very hard hit. Um, you, you, I don't know, I don't do this, but it, if people say there's gonna be more family violence, well, little boys are more likely to be victims of violence in the home than, than girls. It happens to girls, but it happens more to boys. I don't see the point in, in stressing this and looking at it right now but if you're going to do it then but now you've got uh, uh, Melinda Gates who has just discovered feminism (laughs) and she's devoting a billion dollars to addressing the fact that it's going to take 207 years for American women to catch up she got this figure out of nowhere. Well, she got it from somewhere, but not a, not a reliable source. And uh, she, so now she's at the forefront of this movement to talk about how it's women who are the primary victims. What do you think motivates this type of reporting? I remember, I think James Taranto, when he used to do the best of the web column for the Wall Street Journal, would always have, I mean, the headline would be something like, world ends, colon, women hardest hit. And right. there does, I mean, what do, you, what do you think motivates a lot of this type of coverage where even in cases where if the majority of people dying might be male, I mean, I don't know the statistic. It's possibly women are much more hardly hit by this than the average man is. But it, it seems like there's always some urge to find this type of angle. And I mean, why do you think that is? I just, I don't understand it. Well, of course, it's part of the 
identity politics and seeing us as a member of a particular group and then the, the, the group that's blamed for everything are, are males, uh, but then you have, you can do a complicated intersectional analysis and figure out who's suffering worse and in, 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 in these micro categories. But they'll, they'll settle for just women. That's been, the majority of articles have been about women. Now there've been some articles about African-Americans. And again, I think that's important to know and to understand and is, it, is, there, is it all sociological and sociocultural? Is it partly biological? Because there are some differences in susceptibility to diseases that affect different ethnicities and, and different races. We don't know. Uh, and I can, you know, I can see talking about that as part of a general position in society where your group is more susceptible to uh, suffering and, and, and hardship. But with women, I just don't see any point or any evidence that they are more hard hit. It's not to say that there aren't areas where they're struggling more than men, but there are areas where men are struggling more, if you want to do that. So... I think it's understandable where race is concerned and mis it's, there's mischief. It's mischievous where the, the activists, and I hate to say that about Melinda Gates, because on the other hand, she and her husband are doing fantastic work uh, trying to find vi uh, you know, a, a vaccine for the virus and putting a lot of money. But she's obsessed with this cause. And she's now been in USA Today. She's, I don't know what's going on with Politico, she's there uh, doing workshops on how to alleviate the oppression of caregivers because it's women, it's a woman's issue, that sort of thing. And uh, there we are. Now, I, I feel like there were a lot of people, you know, before this who were kind of saying, essentially identity politics is a function of people not having real problems. And if yeah. we had real problems, identity politics would go away. Well, now we've got a lot of, you know, centuries, the century's biggest problems facing us all at once, an economic crisis, a health crisis. Do you think that identity politics will start to retreat a bit here as we face bigger issues? Or do you think that, you know, people's, the interests evolved here are just so strong that it's not going anywhere? Here's my worry. I, I would have thought so maybe even five years ago, but the progressive left really has, you know, positioned themselves at the center of many fundamental institutions. And so if we, in a time where there's just a lot of chaos and uncertainty, they're organized, they're determined, and they can get their way. And where the rest of the people aren't paying attention. And so I just read, I don't know what this is, if this is even relevant, but that the chancellor of all of the UC systems in California, which the, the universities in the in the UC system are some of the premier universities in the world, but now they've decided to take away the requirement that students take either an SAT or an ACT. Now, it's possible this won't lower standards, but they're they're they're, they're discussing taking them away. At first, it was just going to be this year. Now they're saying until 2024. So it almost looks like they're just taking a. It's a quick move in a state, you know, where people aren't really paying that much attention to fundamentally mm -hmm. change the society. Now, I presume it's based on uh, wanting to, though they said, to promote more equity in the system. And of course, the assumption is the SATs are uh, uh, undermined equity, which is, I think, just the opposite. I think it's, it's not perfect. These tests aren't perfect, but it's probably the best system we have for finding people um, and evaluating their capacity to perform at a certain level and they don't want that. So I guess it'll, and I see this going on with de Blasio, Mayor de Blasio in New York. I think he's gonna go, he's been wanting to stop these, the, the schools that have tests, mm -hmm. uh, Stuyvesant and Bronx High School of Science. And these schools, do such a great job for poor kids who would never, poor smart kids who are underserved by public schools. And 
it, but it doesn't turn out to reflect, you know, all of the different populations in the society. It's overwhelmingly Asian right now. It used to be Jewish. Now it's Asian. It's a lot of poor kids, first generation immigrants from ch in, in poor neighborhoods around Chinatown. And so, but um, he wants to, I think he's going to make a move on that. So long answer to your question people who are organized and determined can get their way and especially at time of uncertainty and and chaos so we have to be on the lookout and we have to be <laughs> people have to organize around common sense and and you know preserving just basic a rational approach to the world and i don't think that's as galvanizing as you know wanting to overthrow the the capitalist, uh, patriarchal, uh, white supremacist hegemony, you know? <laughs> well, if, if you want that rational approach, audience, keep listening to banter, so long as we have guests like Christina on here. But Christina, you bring up colleges, and I do want to ask you about something, because during the, all the coronavirus debates, there are so many questions about what's new about this tragedy? What have we seen before? Well, similarly, on the subject of identity politics and woke college campuses, you yourself have an interesting experience because not only did you teach philosophy, but you got your PhD in philosophy from Brandeis and in the, in the late 70s, which is, was known as one of the most liberal campuses in the country. So my question is, what is new about the woke campuses you see now in identity politics and liberal activism now versus what you observed, say, at Brandeis and elsewhere in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, well, it's very different because when I, even when I was in college, I was at NYU in the 70s and I was a protester and all of that, but it, it was the, probably a minority of students, but a lot of students were very left-wing. And the professors, you didn't know their politics. You just didn't. They, I don't know what, I didn't know if they were Democrats or Republicans, most of them. And they weren't about to tell me. The administration, they probably were Republicans. And I think uh, that has all changed. And what has changed most dramatically is this sort of invisible army of, or a network of assistant deans of dormitory life and, you know, assistant, uh, secretary of campus morale some school some uh, campuses have i think I, I don't remember the exact number but a shocking amount of number 60 people that are devoted to uh dedicated to uh title nine and all of these officers this and this is one reason one of the many reasons college is so expensive but they all carry a fairly uh harsh, you know, hardline left-wing worldview, enforcing, you know, microaggression monitoring and um, speech codes and so forth. They weren't in our, in colleges. It was the students and some professors. We, there were a few radical professors. Majority didn't know what their politics were. So now you have a lot more, many, many more professors who are activists. And you have this network of uh, I don't want to call them operatics, but that's what they are. They're busybodies. I mean, I'm sure they do some worthy things, but it's very bad. And they control a lot in, in, in the, the everyday life of a student. They're the, in the dorms and they're, they give mandatory workshops on, you know, for campus life. And they were, this is new. And they are, they are the enforcers. And I think a lot of students now think that this is just, normal this is just reality and if by accident they happen to hear it still shocks me because they'll hear i don't know they'll hear a lecture by me or they'll hear someone who's you know pro free market and they're just like shocked but then it, it you know maybe it makes sense to them but they they doubt their their own common sense their own intuitions because everybody around them has is maintaining this sort of uh, delusion. And so I, I don't know how we're gonna break it down, how we will overcome it that easily, but I'm not entirely pessimistic because 
partly things come in waves and it, there are fashions and people get tired of it. And but I don't know, this could last a long time. This has a feeling of a, almost um, uh, a paradigm shift in the culture. And partly because while uh, conservatives and libertarians and moderates weren't looking, central institutions were sort of taken over or just now have a critical mass of people who care a lot, who work together and enforce their, their worldview. So you're, you're I, just saw, I just saw a bunch of articles yesterday. At first, I just thought it was a just Twitter BS where uh, this uh, young woman named Allison, what is it, Allison Roman, is a food writer at the New York Times, just a food writer and people love her. And, and actually she has great recipes. You should check them out, just quick ways to make great things. And she was interviewed somewhere and she was just, she was a little snarky about Marie Kondo and Christy Tagan and how they, you know, are sort of uh, capitalizing on their celebrity and, and marketing all these products. And, and she was just snarky about them. Well, Christy Tagan found out about this, and somehow it was interpreted as, as, as Alison Roman, a New York Times food writer, going after two women of color, because Marie Kondo is, is Asian, and, and, and Christy Tagan is half, well, I think, I don't know, she, maybe one of her parents is half... Samoan, uh, maybe? I think from, from uh, Thailand, maybe. Oh, Thailand, yeah. Like she's Swedish and then another pair, I mean, she's a, a small, uh, but in it, we have to say, it, so it, it turned into this huge thing. And now I thought it would go away. It's, it's growing and growing. And now this Alison Roman had to write a letter that was looked like something out of the, a struggle session. And I, I, I should have been more sensitive and I have learned from this, but I have to do the work. It's not for you. And she just had all of these phrases these phrases like George Orwell in the politics of the English language had this wonderful idea that about the, the dangers of slogans where that, that they, they, they replace thought, they do the thinking for you. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see happening is people have, have gone to this, this world where they've replaced critical thinking with sloganeering and all that comes with it, the, you know, the, the indignation, there must be, again, before you ask like why people do this. And I think there's solidarity. I think they're positive things. They get a very good feeling, a kind of group spirit. It's probably the case though, that, well, it's obviously the case that social media has weaponized it. And so now it, it, I, I wanted to write to her and tell her, you know, you, should, you don't have to apologize. At first, she was feisty and fought back, and I liked that, but she risk at the New York Times. And I just wanted to tell her, like, it's just Twitter. It's not the real world. But maybe Twitter is becoming the real world, because this ethos, I don't think it represents the majority of people on Twitter or the majority of people on, on the campus. But the people who are like that, there are enough of them to make your life miserable and threaten your job. I want to come back to the college uh, angle first later because that, that's also very interesting. But I, I also saw this Allison Roman thing on Twitter the other day. I had never heard of it before, but she was trending. And yeah, I also saw the angle like, you know, white woman attached to women of color, which I highly, I mean, Allison Roman, I imagine is a liberal woman. I doubt she was thinking in her head, I'm going to go attack two women of color. <laughs> so ridiculous. Uh, are, I mean, but it makes me think of it like there's the quote, you know, every revolution, every revolution starts to eat its own. And it seems like this, the more woke revolution is even turning on white women now. You well, they're the new the white time. men. Yeah, they white feminism. The new, they're the new white men. At first, it was the lesbians who didn't, you know, who weren't comfortable with the trans movement. That'll go away. That's, I never answered. That's my landline. I haven't answered it in three years. It's only telemarketing. That could be Chrissy Teigen calling. <laughs> She's on the line. She's blocked me. I wanted uh, to look to see. No, she a, did not. She did. I don't know. It was some time ago. Something. Oh, I, I, just, I asked a question, and she, she, <laughs> and 
Who was her boyfriend? John Legend. John, John Legend. Legend yeah. yeah. Yeah, he blocked me too. I think. So. <laughs> Snowflakes. <laughs> but Christina, do you don't, don't you think at some point? I mean, maybe it's because we're in the AEI bubble, but there's this whole trope that everybody our age is like this. These you know woke snowflakes and whatever. Yeah, it seems to me that at some point there's going to have to be a backlash where you're going to have so many people who are just so sick of this whole, you know, the woke filter over their whole lives. Do you think that's what we're seeing a bit with, you know, obviously you're extremely popular, people like Dave Rubin, Sam Harris. Do you think it's coming back and it's going to start to swing back the other direction and we'll get some more moderation and diversity of thought in our lives? I think it drives people so crazy. I honestly think that's why Donald Trump won. There are all sorts of analyses, but I think there was a sense that people, people were just fed up all across the country with this certain kind of contemptuous leftist politics that made no sense, but it was being imposed on everyone. Now, he's so unpopular now and so impossible that it's unimaginable, but I could see this. It, it, it's so annoying that, I'll give you an example of um, something that's troubling me a lot, which is with this Joe Biden thing, when he was accused by Tara Reid, I, I, I didn't take it seriously. And I'm of, I have the view that if something is 27 years old and there isn't massive cooperation and you don't find a pattern of behavior. I mean, in other words, I think that the, I don't rule out the possibility that someone could be exposed by means other than you know going through the criminal justice system because we've seen with Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby there are cases that somehow just somehow they got away with it but in those cases there was massive cooperation there were many many people describing the same thing it just became impossible to doubt that that this person had behaved uh, horribly and criminally but there was nothing like that with Biden. I mean, he'd done some, whatever he does, hair sniffing or <laughs> creepy things, but, <laughs> but that is not the same as what he was accused of. This is qualitatively different. This was a disgusting, violent uh, assault on her. So it, I just didn't, but I knew it was gonna be trouble for him. And, and sure enough, uh, you know, you've, you've got, in the nation, this philosopher Kate Mann wrote, I believe Tara, you know, it's just insane. And many people uh, on the left and the right's a little confused by it because it, uh, but people, people who don't like Biden will certainly jump in and into the fray. But the problem is Biden is the person probably most responsible for writing the regulations that are present in the college campus through Title IX. He was, he, it, many, many times, he was with the people that were pushing for these reforms. He was at the forefront of changing the rules so that you really could have what we saw, kind of kangaroo courts on campus where people were guilty because accused. You were presumed guilty because women never lie because about this, you know, it's, and you should believe women. So he was a part of that. Now it's, it's, he's been hoist on his own petard, and you would think he would have some insight because now Betsy DeVos, is, the Secretary of Education, has changed the rules. She's not letting people off the hook. She's taking, she wants to treat uh, accusers with respect and dignity and have a fair procedure, but she wants the accused to have some rights as well. That's all she's done, and yet, Biden says, the, my first act is I'm going to restore, you know, the Title IX provision. So he's going to restore provisions that if acted upon, in his case, he would be considered guilty. So that, again, how, you asked me if, early on, like, why do people do this? What's in it? You know, I'm not a psychiatrist or I, I don't know, but I find it very, very strange. Now, it may be just it may be that we're so tribal right now that, and that, that the confirmation bias is so extreme that we see everything through the filter of our own group and even Biden, even against his own self, 
you know, his own survival, <laughs> uh, he can't make the connection. But then I worry, you know, I worry, well, maybe I'm doing that. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm, you know, so I keep trying to do reality tests and sometimes it just drives me crazy. And then I think, okay, other people see this. And I have seen lots of people saying, okay, this belief, just believe women was a silly precept because, uh, and it's actually even sexist because women, to, to the idea that women are sort of pure and virtuous would never lie. Women lie not because they're women, because they're human, and human beings have been known to uh, prevaricate, especially about sex. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of reasons to, to lie about it. Uh, because right now, you, you know, we see in Tara Reid's case, it brought her some, uh, well, we don't know. I mean, it could have happened, but it also could be, she could be wanting attention. That happened with, uh, in other cases, with Kavanaugh, there was, a, I forget her name, Julie, do you remember some? Juan something yeah, or something. Swigert or something. It was just a, a, a complete invention, but she wanted the attention. Anyway, I'm but carrying it, on. But either way, it's awfully convenient now, though, to say, "Oh, now we now we recognize it's just you know, don't believe every woman." They could have they could have said admitted this two years ago at the Kavanaugh hearing. Well, exactly. That's why I, for me, I, part of it, I was just like, it seemed like poetic justice or something, you know, and I didn't want to. Uh, but but I don't like it. I don't like it against you. You know, I don't like to see it against Joe Biden or, but, but he, he created it. So, or he helped create it. He wasn't alone. I don't know even if he knew what he was doing, but I, here we are. So, that, so anyway, this, this makes it very hard because I know that if his, if he comes in as president, he's going to bring a whole team of hardline feminists. He's going to make, bring reasonable people in in all sorts of other areas for good people that I won't mind at all. Uh, but in the th issues that I care about, free speech issues on campus and, you know, restoring some sanity on gender issues and not trying to pass pointless laws like the Paycheck Fairness Act, which is based on a misapprehension, a misunderstanding of the, uh, the wage gap. He's got, that's all going to come back and more. They're even going to bring back the ERA. <laughs> Christina, one of our favorite parts uh, about hosting this podcast has been we've been able to talk to some of our favorite thinkers, people like you, Caitlin Flanagan. I know you all know each other, Andrew Sullivan, Congressman Crenshaw. And it makes you think of, of a point uh, that Max brought up earlier and, and, and you alluded to is, is the popularity of a lot of these underground thinkers, or as Eric Weinstein termed, the intellectual dark web. I know that's a little old. You may not have heard that term in a while. But <laughs> I miss that. I miss that. <laughs> I've got to say, I, a liberal friend pointed this out in, in college when I was sort of decrying mainstream media and the bias that exists on, on our most prominent platforms. Is, is at what point do these underground thinkers become mainstream? If you look at the biggest podcasts in the world, you have Joe Rogan as the single biggest podcast host in the world. And then you have not far behind Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson when he had the podcast, Dan Crenshaw. And then you look at the other people, part of that group like yourself, like Dave Rubin, uh, Candace Owens. These are some of the most popular people uh, as thought leaders, especially. So are, are you guys really not the mainstream or part of the, not the dark web, but the web, you know, at what point are you all the, 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 the show and not the side show that's undermining the main show? The problem is uh, the reason that we're popular isn't because, you know, we're just, we've we, it's not that we've broken through the establishment. It's that we, we say things that people think, gosh, that sounds true. They, and that they, maybe they're not free to say them and we're free to say them. And it's, people are relieved because a lot of the things that the progressive left is requiring people to think and to say are just obviously not true. It's obviously that there, there's a difference between men and women. And there's, you know, just all sorts of things that they claim to be true that are not true. And their theories are half-baked about you know 
their theories about the need for trigger warnings and 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 microaggressions and i think their analysis of the united states as a uh one of the most oppressive societies in fact it's the opposite it's one of the freest societies where not perfect but they always make the perfect the enemy of the good and that here we are so i think we're popular for doing that but we're not in, in the inside in the things if you look what worries me is what's going on in newspapers you know the new york times on these issues the new york times washington post the la times uh what's going on in publishing what's going on in hollywood like a, a friend of mine um, works in hollywood and there's a very successful screenwriter a man who's won awards and things but uh, he can't write screenplays now when he writes them he you're assigned a minder sort of someone that will um go through and make sure that you know it's i think it's like an empathy counselor or something but it's really just to make sure that he's not violating one of the rules of the uh i guess you know uh, the progressive, the woke progressivists. And uh, so that's, that's becoming the, that's becoming the establishment. And so increasing numbers of people who uh, I read at uh, great publications, the, the New Yorker, not all, and there are some wonderful surprises at New York Magazine, you know, there's Andrew Sullivan. But then there are many, many other writers who are, you know, they're part of the call-out culture. They're, they write these bullying exposés of people who violated some rule, um, some arcane rule, or willfully misinterpret something they said. Did you follow this? This um, what was the name of that pop star that got attacked because he was he was attacking? He he wrote a uh, maybe a tweet or I'm not sure what he did, but. Uh, uh, I don't remember his name though. Ryan. He he just was. He, I forget his name, but he's a famous Canadian rocker. <laughs> Wait, Brian <laughs> Adams. Yeah. Oh and yeah, about the bat about the bat thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he yeah. was just like the poor guy. Oh, he had wow. some concerts canceled at at the uh, you know London Royal uh, at the where was it? It was it's some big. Wait, place. is this the guy who did Summer of 69? Yeah, it's, yes, it's, yes, it's, yes, it's Brian oh, Adams. Oh, yeah. Brian yeah. Adams. Uh, I just watched a concert of him and Taylor Swift live. So he's really, he's gone from Taylor Swift performance to now what you're saying. He performed yeah. with Taylor Swift? Yes. And Taylor Swift apparently loved her. I saw it on YouTube. It was a big tech algorithm, took me to the video. But, anyways. <laughs> so he was supposed to play at the london palladium or somewhere and he said i was supposed to be there but and he's a vegan right so he said but because some you know a, a greedy bastard you know had to eat bats don't eat bats you know those are you know in these wet markets and and i you know and he and so he just you know was was having a bit of a rant well because he mentioned bats that meant China, and that means that he's racist. And you go on Twitter right now and says his name racist, and it's like 10,000 people. And if you write something aggressive about him being a racist, you get, the, I mean, the, the people with big followings, they get thousands of likes, and it, this mob is growing, and I, I hope he doesn't apologize, but so far he's been quiet, but people are noticing that, and they're counting, you know, and, and maybe he can get away with it, but. And this is the sort of thing that it worries me because the next it's just people are going to watch what they say and he what he said was true it did come i mean it looks to be the case that bats are implicated it was in wuhan china so you can't even mention the bats and that's considered racist and our and and it also occurs to me that maybe that there are the chinese government does have trolls that try to stir up trouble they may be feeding this. I don't know, but we we have so many clueless uh, leftists who are so ready to be part of this irrational crusade. And in this case, to to harm this guy, 
I don't know if they'll succeed. Maybe he's too big for that, but I'm sure if he immediately took down the tweet. I'm sure he is, doesn't, isn't happy what's going on. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, vegans are pretty tough. I don't think they're going to apologize for anything. If anything, he'll demand that we all apologize to him. Well, I think I prefer, I, 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 actually these days, I kind of prefer PETA to, because PETA are just, they're outrageous and they don't care and they've got this one cause. And there's something, you know, I have to say there's something kind of legitimate about their cause. Yeah. Whereas the, I mean, I do feel guilty about eating animals. I try now not, not to eat any pork and I'm trying to be a vegetarian, but it's hard, especially in a pandemic, but right. you need, you need protein and <laughs> I don't know how to get it. I just, uh, but anyway, uh, so I have a soft spot in my heart for PETA, but these other groups, I'm on PETA's side, I'm on his side. And yeah, I hope you're right that he, uh, Christina, you mentioned a second ago the ERA. Have you watched Mrs. America? Seems like it'd be yes. right up your alley. What do you What do yes. you think about it? It's funny because um, the the cast, the writer, Dobby Waller, they're very good. It's prestige TV. It's you know very high production values, beautifully acted, and the the per, the, the main writer, the creator. Dobby Waller worked on Mad Men and it's that good in terms of the just the beauty of each scene in their deeply researched every you know someone is using a pen it's the exact correct pen you know every little thing you see in the background on TV that's what was on TV and not to mention the clothes the hairdo so the whole thing is it's just beautifully done but the politics are deranged <laughs> and again that is why i worry because you could say all right you know uh joe rogan has a big following on his podcast but now we're talking about the the movies that are being made the people who are at the top of that um you know at the of the hierarchy and who are you know getting hugely uh, financed uh, series now, I don't think she's an exception. I think that Dobby Waller, and so she was interviewed and I wondered, I saw, I, I thought I saw what was going on because it looked to me like the whole thing, apart from being amusing and well done, was a, a total application of, of intersectionality because she had, it, it, people were saying, oh, it's amazing. She's criticizing the feminists. No, she was criticizing the white feminists. So now she was, you know, you're allowed to do that. And then there were two African-American, well, several African-American people in the actresses, but they were sort of untouchables and giving lectures and talking dead. And then, the, and then there were just some horrible men. And then there were conservatives. I mean, that was the lowest cycle of hell. So she was a little bit critical of the white feminist, but she pretends to be sympathetic to Phyllis Schlafly and the, the housewives who protested the ERA, but only for an episode or two. After that, she's, and she invents things. Now you can say, well, of course it's Hollywood, but she pretends like it's historically accurate. And she said, yes, we, based on deep readings, we created some dialogue, you know, as we imagined it would be. And of course that entails Phyllis Schlafly being not just having politics she disagrees with, that she shows her being like a mommy dearest mother, you know, from hell and a, a, a tyrannical leader and a, 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 a duplicitous friend, pathological liar. None of this is, is, there's no evidence for it. And I know quite a bit about Phyllis Schlafly. I don't, but there's no, she was, she was known to be pretty nice to people and she was able to raise, to create the, maybe the biggest like grassroots, uh, uh, movement in, in American history. That the Amer Equal Rights Amendment was about to pass. It had Republican support and Democrat support. It was, uh, people saw it as kind of a gesture of respect. And what Phyllis Schlafly found out, someone asked her if she would debate it. 
she's a you know she was a midwestern mother of six she was a political activist and a bit of a firebrand about nuclear weapons and strat she had a lot to say and influenced uh, Gold, uh goldwater and others and wrote a famous book uh, about him um but she read what the feminists she read what the era activists were up to and she looked at the materials and saw that this isn't about a gesture of respect it's not just a symbol of goodwill towards women she knew that women formally legally already had equal protection i mean that's in the 14th amendment it's in the in the civil rights act by even by 19 certainly the early 70s the courts were just knocking down one sort of arbitrary barrier after another and by the mid 70s women had formal equality there were a few more things to do and and you had to change attitudes and things to have it realized but she didn't she so she wondered what are they going to do with it and and she read their materials and they saw it as um a, a means of imposing a gender revolution and so gloria steinem they wanted to get rid of what they saw as the gender system and the main thing they wanted to do was to have women in combat women not only drafted but in combat now that's controversial even now it was unfathomable in the 70s so she would go around and say that and as soon as people realized that these women had weird plans to use this amendment people turned against it because they realized it wasn't just a gesture it was it was a substantive law that was going to kind of uh, justify the world view of the national organization for women and phil schlafly had revolution now this publication she defeated the feminists not by what the movie makes it look like by trickery she defeated them by quoting them she just went around revolution now was one of her biggest hits she sold it to raise money she sold the propaganda from now at her events for people to read and they would read it and think oh my god this is what we're going to get so they turned against it now you see none of this in mrs america you she this mrs america acts like oh it was just a myth that they wanted women in the military but there's no historian of that period that denies that there's a, a jane mansbridge uh, i guess she used to be at university of wisconsin a political scientist now she's at harvard I think. and uh, she wrote maybe the definitive book and it's called why we lost the era and it's a political analysis and it was because of infighting mostly i mean yeah phyllis was out there making trouble as she saw it but it was it was a fight within the left the radical feminists drove out the moderates they insisted that it 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 would it would be a an amendment that would underwrite abortion on demand federally funded abortion and it eliminate all differences eliminate all the differences between men and women just as we have tried to do with the races so you wouldn't have you know somebody of a certain race not going in the military or not going in combat you, you know everybody and that's what they wanted so she but you don't find that it in the in mrs america it looks like it was all done by chicanery and by <laughs> you know hysteria of phyllis schlafly and i'll say one last thing phyllis schlafly was famously great as a debater and they have a debate that actually took place on the tom snyder tomorrow show it was a real debate and you watch it on the show and i watched it and i was very surprised because you see a phyllis looking kind of uh she's addled and she's confused she's uncertain she's hemming and hawing and and then the in the debate the lawyer on the other side catches her uh saying something she can't back up and the the lawyer uh brenda fagan from the aclu and now says name the case phyllis name the case and they have this you know it's it's kate blanchett saying well i don't know the case i'm not a lawyer maybe it was you know and she hi i'm just a lawyer's wife and she, she just acted like an airhead never this phyllis never would act like an airhead and then and then the uh the now lawyer goes in for the kill she says name the case you can't name the case you are a fraud and you know she tells her off mm -hmm. so this this was a real debate 
And I have heard uh, Davi Waller say, uh, we, we, you know, we did take license, take liberties with the dialogue behind, you know, personal conversations, but she said all the debates and the events are real. Well, as it happens, the one of the organizations that uh, was founded by Phyllis Schlafly, the Eagle Forum, but this is an, actually a different one. It's called the Phyllis's Eagles, I think. They have the actual tape of the Tom Snyder show. And I saw it. They let me see it. They sent me the link. And what they did was they reversed it. It was Brenda, the ACLU feminist lawyer that was humiliated. In the middle of the debate, Brenda says, because Phyllis had denied that there's that much discrimination, uh, formal discrimination. And Brenda said, oh no, there's a bank in Queens. No, there, she said, there are banks where women have to, will not get loans unless they can sign that they've been sterilized. And then, it, actually Phyllis is doing this debate with her husband and Brenda's with her husband. It was a couple's right. debate. Then the other, so then Fred Schlafly comes back and says, name the bank. Any bank that did that would be in big trouble. And she said, well, I don't want to, I don't want to name names. And, and then she gets all flustered and she can't name it. And then he goes, name the bank. And then Tom Snyder comes in. If there's a bank in New York City where they're asking women about sterilization, that, that's not something that you'd be a plug saying. They, they, they'd be in big trouble. And then she looks just frozen and she's freaked out. So what, what? the writers of Mrs. America did was they just switched the parts and anybody watching wow. it will think you're seeing a real debate. And they, they, she says it and it, they sort of indicate that they say warning, you know, some of these events are about, but, but it's based on some true events and debates. Well, yeah, it was based on a debate that took place, but that's not what happened. And it was not Phyllis who was, so you get a false picture. Right. So it wasn't her. just, liberties with the dialogue it was liberties with the truth more so to suit, to suit they rigged the debate they just rigged it yes. and it, and then i just thought that's their fantasy their fantasy is that anybody who challenges them has got to be so fraudulent and just um un, unreliable and duplicitous and <laughs> so they made that be phyllis and they didn't and they didn't uh, and brenda came out and then Brenda walks off with her husband and she's triumphant and it's all never happened. So it's all manip, you know, it's manipulated. And then, but the thing is, I'm trying to write about it. I'm having a hard time because it's hard to write about, about popular culture because especially popular culture that's done so well. Hmm. And then I'm not, and, and, and then in the end, I, I, I determined that it's probably not, that bad because they're such good writers and Kate Blanchett is such a great actress that they made Phyllis Schlafly very interesting. She's a villain, but she's kind of a fabulous villain and she's more powerful and more effective than anybody uh, on the feminist side. And, and she made the feminists sort of look like fools, most of them. And so overall, I think it doesn't matter. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> so this is what intersectionality is going to be in Hollywood. All right, they, 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 the truth, it's warped history. They mangle the facts. But I think you come away, I don't, some people are coming away thinking, oh, both sides are interesting. You know, people don't always get the message that they're intended to yeah. receive. Yeah, I mean, Darth Vader is the most popular Star Wars character for a reason. He's the villain, but people still somehow come away thinking that he's the more, more, most, uh, influential one so maybe that they, may be the extent to what phyllis schlafly and darth vader have in common <laughs> very good point. we might have to take well, out no, that analogy the, the opening scene the very first episode is uh kate blanchett but it's phyllis the you know phyllis by, by then she's probably about supposed to be about 50 she's got six kids but it's it's hollywood's idea of a, of a typical I guess this would have been in you know 1970, a typical Republican event. Far, far away. Yeah, and and it was a fundraiser for congressmen, and they had a, so they had a beauty contest of all the wives coming out in bikinis. So you see Phyllis Schlafly coming out. It's Kate Blanchett, you know, in a in oh in, in a, a patriotic themed bikini, you know, red, white, and blue with stripes and stars. 
And, you know, the men are smoking and leering and ogling. <laughs> and, but the thing is, Kate Blanchett looks like a goddess. And she's sort of contemptuous. Not, she's just dismissive because Phyllis was very intelligent. She, they, they can't make her into an airhead, except in the debate they did. But that, that was a, the exception. So over and over again, Kate Blanchett just looks sort of like a, an Amazon. And um, they shouldn't have cast Kate Blanchett. And I think Phyllis Schlafly, I asked her daughter, because I interviewed her, I said, do you think your mom would mind <laughs> how great she looks in this? And she said, not at all. <laughs> so is it, even though it's silly, uh, in the end, it's not all that insulting, even though they do make her into uh, a diabolical monster half the movie. Yeah, well, this, this, good, this ties into a couple of things. And we'll, we're running out of time, so we'll have to end it here. But I mean, we talked about how you mentioned earlier, a lot of professors on campus now are more liberal now than they were. I mean, by some stats, like 90% are Democrats or liberal. Hollywood is obviously very liberal. Even the Pulitzer Prize Committee, there's a big hubbub last week when the 1619 Project won a Pulitzer Prize, despite- yeah, And by the way, it's not just liberal, it's liberal. It's like progressive, um, you know, the, in abiding by all of these, by the identity politics and the, uh, policing and monitoring for minor lapses that's happening in publishing in hollywood and um in certainly the universities well yes yeah, so i guess my question is so we have a lot of college students who listen to this parents with college people going to college what advice do you have i mean we, there's the joe rogan podcast i guess but what do you tell people when you go to college campuses who they might not even be conservative but they just want to reach out to as many different ideas and traditions of thought as possible What's your advice to them for what they should be reading, listening to, and how they should be going about their college experience? Well, it's the, typically I'm invited by either the Federalist Society or the college libertarians or Repub college Republicans. And uh, what I tell them is that uh, unlike many of their peers, uh, nobody's going to care that much about their feelings. So, you know, professors are supposed to be so attentive, like, to be to care about the feelings of students but not conservative students and that's a good thing because if you are a conservative or a libertarian you're going to be tested all the time you're going to be hearing counter examples it, it, every time every practically every conversation so you're getting stronger and you're getting intellectually uh just uh i think more prepared and um you'll you, you read more widely because they have you know sort of sacred texts that take all their time um at, whereas a, or or even if they read the classics they read them through a prism that's uh, that narrows their understanding there the, the problem is you have uh, friends i mean they're your colleagues uh, in graduate school or in college and some of the professors have been are burdened with ideas that make it impossible for them to think clearly or to think originally. And I think it has damaged uh, an entire gen generation. This is a bit strong, maybe I can't sustain it, but I think it's sustainable. I think it has uh, damaged a, a generation of uh, a female uh, uh, intellectuals. And they, so many of them, simplistic, ludicrous, uh, melodramatic view of society, and it's undermined their ability to think. So if you are a young woman, an educated young woman, or man that doesn't think that way, it gives you some burdens because people will be, you know, not friendly, but you make great friends with your, your buddies who <laughs> agree with you in the, in the debate club or whatever, the, the free speech club or the young, young uh, Republicans or whatever. Um, and you get a, a good education. So you, you have, there are advantages. I would rather be in that group than in having been a leftist in, in college, but we didn't have this, you know, it wasn't reinforced. We were just kind of making it up. And then, you know, I ran into all sorts of people that were, even in grad school at Brandeis, you mentioned, the people weren't, out of, the people were everything and they would change. My friends would change. I had one friend who would be, he was like a, a Marxist. Uh, and then he became like, converted to become a radical capitalist i don't know what he is now but <laughs> christina this was incredible and one good thing though about so you talk about not just the training you can get by thinking differently than the tide 
But one good thing about 2020 is you can also educate yourself. On oh yeah, I meant to say podcasts, like yeah. to banter. And I, I like the commentary podcast. Femsplainers, like, let's be honest. Femsplainers. I like Jonah Goldberg. You, yes. You know, I think he's great. Um, I, I tell students to check out like AEI to come to their, you know, we have these programs for college mm -hmm. students. We have the AEI council. And then, you know, groups like FIRE, one of my favorites. It's bipartisan, it, it, but it attracts smart uh, people who care about basic freedoms and and the you know democratic liberal society and it, but it, it on the left and right uh, uh, fire is bipartisan and they have summer programs they have great podcasts great readings and i'm forgetting many things but you know and then what you mentioned the intellectual dark web for more <laughs> the more subversive side I mean, actually for people looking making sense with sam harris that's another great one i mean absolutely and there's a new one that i love um it's with, uh, it's this guy, Jesse Single, S-I-N-G, it's, it's impossible to spell Jesse's name, S-I-N-G-A-L, uh, it's <laughs> counterintuitive. Have you guys and he does it with Katie Herzog, and they're both leftists who can't stand political correctness. And those are my favorite kind of leftists, I get along with them. <laughs> and um, it's called, uh, uh, oh God, what's their podcast? You, you have been canceled. Canceled, I think. Locked and canceled. Um, and, and just one more thing before we, I, it's, it's funny because I know in your uh, interview with Bill Maher last year, he said, I did a show called Politically Incorrect. Looks like we didn't stop that movement. And then he said, you've been fighting against the irrational feminism, third and fourth wave, and that's not going anywhere. So these are going to be ongoing fights. So keep educating yourselves. Keep listening to Christine Hoff Summers and uh, you'll come out on top. <laughs> I'm not going to go going away. And now I have a lot of free so time. I'm at home. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Great talking with you guys. Well, thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Quarantine Banter. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it. Thank you to Christina Hall Summer for coming on the show. We were thrilled to finally get her on. We've been meaning to do that for a long time. We also got great feedback from Colleen B. over at Ricochet from our episode last week with Ryan Berg. Colleen says, interesting interview about an important topic. That's COVID in Latin America, for those who did not tune in. I have, of course, been hearing about the situation in Brazil and Ecuador, but it is interesting to hear how other countries are doing. Ryan Berg really gave us the uh, layout of the whole Central and South American landscape on coronavirus, and some countries are doing well, but Basically, it's about to be winter down there and things might get dicey. So we encourage you to check out the, that interview with Ryan if you have not already. Well, thank you all for tuning in today for this episode with Christina Hoff Summers. One thing we would recommend is to check out her podcast, Femsplainers, which she <laughs> co-hosts with Danielle Crittenden. And it's, it's, a, it's a really terrific, free-flowing, fun podcast uh, casual but serious when it needs to be. They have some amazing guests on. And if you, if you want to check out more, Christine Hoff Summers has some great videos on YouTube called Factual Feminist. She is, in fact, the factual feminist. And also check out our interviews with Bill Maher. I swear the show is not paid for by Real Time with Bill Maher. I know we talk about him a lot. But he just has some great guests and some of the ones we've had on Banter. And, and she's had some great interviews and gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with some of our country's biggest thinkers on that show. So check them out, and thank you again for tuning in today. I do have one final recommendation that we cannot get into the interview. As you've probably heard from the interview as well, Christine is part of what they call the intellectual dark web. You know, that's kind of become a much maligned term now. There are many critics of it from the left, but there's also some from the right too, because the intellectual dark web can be overly libertarian sometimes, very rationalistic and kind of leaving out they've got some blind spots as well so i encourage you and this goes back to what christina was saying about college campuses not exposing everybody to the full spectrum of ideas i've recommended this book before but i highly recommend you check out yuval levin's book the great debate edmund burke thomas Paine, and the making of right and left yuval is the director of constitutional and social studies here at aei he wrote this great book and it really delves into a realm of political philosophy right-wing political philosophy that's not just the narrow libertarianism that you hear from most places.
So that's called The Great Debate by Yuval Levin. Definitely check it out if you've not already. Yeah, so check it out. Check out all the work that AI is doing these days. We're staying very busy throughout the pandemic. So everyone stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll be back next week.